Welcome to Naming It, where we discuss pop culture, current events, and how they relate to the way that we live our lives, all through the lens of two black psychologists. Naming It is dedicated to acknowledging the elephant in the room, validating the lived experience of people of color. Coming to you from the Bay Area, California, we thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Bedford Palmer. And I'm Dr. Lamisha Hill. Music on Naming It is provided by Lee England Jr., the sole violinist. Good morning, evening, afternoon. Yeah. Welcome to Naming It, y'all. Welcome to Naming It, live from Megasonic Studios. Hey. What? What? We're in the studio. I know. Yo. Wait, wait. What's the episode? You didn't say I have episode. no clue. 62? Uh, 60-something. 62, I think. I don't know. I don't, That's I don't, your, you got I, one job. <laughs> I got lots of jobs, first of all. Don't get it twisted. We are not going to start there today. I'm just playing. I don't remember. I think it's 62. I'm pretty sure it's 62. It's been a long time. Yeah. Summer's been busy. Summer's been busy, but we are back and we, we have are. a special guest on the line yes, with us do. today. Yes, so many new things we happening. Who, who's our guest? Who are, who's our guest? We got on the line Dr. Rosario Rosales Mesa. Yes. You're a homegirl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you there? You there? Hello, buenos dias, buenas tardes. I'm Dr. Rosales Mesa. And yes, I've known Dr. Palmer for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> We're both uh, UCI anteaters. Zot, zot, zot all day. Yeah. <laughs> Yo. Yes. So thank you for having me here. Thank you for coming on. Um, just to give you all some background, I mean, when we say we've known each other forever, it's been like we were undergrads. We worked at the same trio office. Um, we in the student uh, student academic advancement services office. I was a peer advisor. Mm-hmm. You you were working at the the front desk for a while, and then you became a peer advisor yeah. too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, then we ended up having like similar mentors or same mentors, mm-hmm. and we we sudden like we didn't even really. We didn't kick it like that where we really knew each other's career trajectory and stuff, but somehow we ended mm-hmm. up on the same trajectory with the same mentors going to the same interviews and, uh, yeah. you know, it's like, is that, is that Rocio? <laughs> what? Yeah. I know her. So we, yeah, I think it, it was my either freshman or sophomore year that I was in that office. And that was such a, like, I really feel like that set me on the path to be here. Yeah. Um, and then got us into that same mentorship group. So it's so amazing, you know, after after a few years to see like, oh my God, you're you're here too and you have a PhD and, yeah. and you're doing this work. Yeah. It made me so so excited, so happy for, for the folks in, in our communities because we need we need folks of color doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just it's just funny to me in that office. Um the there was always this talk about trio students, the first generation low income students coming in, and us doing better mm-hmm. than the honor students. You know, we had better income uh, outcomes, we had better re- retention and graduation rates. And I just love the fact yeah. that so many people—it's not just us, but so many people from that office who were doing things when we were doing things. I mean, a lot of us have doctorates. A lot of us are successful doing like things that I don't think that we could have imagined ourselves doing when we walked in. Yeah. Like, didn't even understand that was available. Yes, yes, yeah. I was just talking about that this morning on social media, and 
I I would have never imagined growing up that this I would be here. I grew up in a poor working class community. I'm from Santa Ana, mm-hmm. um, in in Orange County, um, not the Orange County that you see on TV. You know, right. it's a poor working class community, and I never would have imagined that this would be my life. But there's really good people at, at UCI that that are about you know mentorship and and really getting us through, and and I think that was key. Yeah. yeah. So since y'all are, you know, taking a trip down memory lane, uh, yes, I'm going to jump. <laughs> y'all going to leave me out. So I'm going to have to ask a couple <laughs> clarifying questions and also for our guests to get to know you a little bit better. Yes. I'm going to do a little bit of a, of a, you know, who are you? What are some of the work that you do before we get into the episode? Because I think it's a good time just to give uh, our listeners an introduction to who you are in your work. You already uh, mm-hmm. referenced your social media, which I took a, a look at your Instagram, uh, very transparent, very visual. But can you tell our listeners a little bit about, uh, you know, the, your intersecting identities? Um, that's one of the things that I noticed that it was all there. You know, your, your identity as a woman of color, as a mother, as an educator, as a healer, all of those things were very present. Yeah, so I am, I identify as a Chicana. I'm first generation. My parents are immigrants from Mexico, and so I'm a proud daughter of immigrants. And I identify as Chicana just in terms of, you know, having a political and racial consciousness as, you know, as a Mexicana. Um, And my PhD is in counseling psychology. I was a professor for 10 years and I achieved tenure, um, but I recently left that career. Um, And I am now transitioning into being uh, a conscious, intuitive life coach. And we can get into that because I think that relates to kind of all, you know, social justice and decolonization, all of that. Um, But this is sort of the new phase of my life and motherhood sort of really um, got me here. And so I, I think that it's important um, to show up as a mother uh, because in, in spaces of academia or even wellness or business in general, uh, we don't really, it's not really visible. And so um, I think mothers that are women of color especially feel that they have to hide that part of their life. Um, so for me, it's very important to show up as my full self to, to make space for women like me. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, our first little segment of, of naming it, we get into our shout in. So is there anyone that you want to shout in Bedford? I'm going to start with you. Um, you know, what? I, I have a kind of a special shout in that has to do with some of the stuff that's happened recently. So you might want to do yours first because it'll be weird. All right. I'm just being real, like emotionally, okay. the content might be a little heavy. Okay. Um, shout-ins for myself for today. I feel like who is on my heart and on my mind. I want to shout in uh, all of my fellow Bay Area psychologists, uh, Dr. Diana Pena, Dr. Cynthia Medina, uh, Dr. Sam Turek. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna take it back to the homies um, for UC Berkeley and Cal, Dr. Clady Davis. Uh, they've been on my mind, they've been in my inbox, so, uh, just thinking about y'all, so. Yeah, that's what's up. Um, did you have any shout-ins, uh, Dr. Rosal? You know, what's on my mind and my heart really is shouting in, uh, spirit and ancestors, and what's particularly on my heart is 
the protectors at Mauna Kea, um, Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. and the families at our colonial border. And so really um, lifting them up and and doing the work that we need to to free them. Right. Yeah. Um, so my my shout-ins, uh, you know, I want to do a uh, shout-in. You know, I got to hang out with uh, Dr. Christy Higgins, um, who is just uh, a mentor. She's a mentor to Clady, to Clady Davis. She's a mentor to me. She um, uh, ran the she was a, ran the training program at uh, UC Davis for many years, um, and uh, I want to shout out to my students who are going to go out to APA. Um, so um, looking forward to spending time with with them and and showing them kind of my what what I've been able to experience and benefit from out there and hopefully like uh, and we're going to present some really cool research. Um, on a different note, I wanted to um, I, I I'm compelled to talk about something that happened recently in life and I'm not going to go too deep into it, but I just want to like quickly uh, shout out my cousin. Who's my brother? His uh, his name is Aki Bop uh, Wilds. And Bop is in uh, quotation marks. That was his nickname. Uh, he was shot in the chest in July on July eighth, and um, he died uh, in Compton uh, from the from that that wound soon after. And uh, you know, I, I I don't feel like I can be in a space where I'm talking about stuff and not at least acknowledge this man's life. Um, he's six months older than me. And uh, we, as black men, we always used to joke about, um, you know, these little milestones. Like, you know, I got through, I got past 13, I got past 16, I got past 21. I'm going to make it now. At 41 years old, you shouldn't be shot in the chest. I mean, you should never. But at 41 years old, we passed those statistics, and so it was a big shock. And there's a lot of people hurting. He left a lot of people who love him, uh, many children, uh, brothers and sisters and cousins and aunties and uncles and, um, you know, just just so many folks. Uh, about 200 people showed up to his funeral. And I, I just wanted to kind of put him out here uh, because he's a he was he was he wanted to rap. He was an entertainer. Uh, he tried really hard to kind of get himself out there. And uh, so if nothing else, you know, MC Bob Star. You got your name out on uh, on naming it, and I know it ain't that big, but at least a lot of people heard the name. And y'all can look him up. He did some uh, videos on YouTube. MC Bobstar. He's a he he's a funny guy. He does flips and all kinds of other stuff. But um, just mad love, and and I wanted to just make sure that if any family here know that I'm thinking about him. All right. Yeah. Definitely sending up the energy and the healing and the prayers to you and your family, and his memory. Right. Yeah. Being with us today. So. Yeah. Appreciate that. So, moving forward, where we at? So, I think we're going to get into what's going on. Ah, so what I got to do? You got to play some music for us. I don't have to do anything this time, right? I think Jeremy's back there, but yeah. but I think so, we're going to slice it in later. So No, Jeremy's going to do so. Tell Jeremy to do it. Oh, is Jeremy going to... Ask Jeremy, ask, ask the man hey, to handle that. Dr. Megasonic? Exactly. Introduce his honorary PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Megasonic, can you please play the jams? So go ahead, y'all do that. What's going on? Hey, no and no. What's going on? <laughs> you just clip that and use that for the rest of the time. You <laughs> <do this> <laughs> All right. 
All right. So, you know, we in the studio. We in the studio. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So what is going on? Um, so what's going on? I mean, there's so many things. I think um there was mention of, of many really huge things going on. Um, and there there's so much to talk about in those spaces. The place I wanted to kind of start off with um was talking about uh there's a presidential candidate. I think her name is Marianne. Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson. Um, a return oh, to love. Yeah. So I'm I'm just going to, so for people who listen, y'all know, if y'all like loyal listeners, you know, Soapbox, all that stuff. Yo, it's already out. I'm just start. I'm on a rant already because I've been, I've been holding this in for weeks. Hashtag um, Beffer's on a rant. So there's a lot of people who like this candidate and they, they like her because she's, and I'm just going to be like straight up. They like her because she's a white woman who says stuff about reparations. That's why they like her, as far as I understand. That's what's been told to me. Um, I like people talking about reparations. I think that conversation needs to come up. But I think that what we have to be very careful of is people who say what we want to hear in order to manipulate us, who don't see us as people, who treat us as as if we're something less than by putting by putting us up and putting us forward. Um, I saw her do, and I I saw multiple things. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too deep into every single comment and statement but like something i saw that has really bothered me um that for me is disqualifying i can't even think about this person that's presidential at this point as someone who could help us as a black community um she went into a church and she basically told the parishioners she got the black people in the church and she took them and used them as objects and asked the white people to ask for forgiveness for slavery and for oppression to these individual black people in this church People, some people really appreciated that and they thought that was a good thing. For me, it was one of the most hollow grandstanding things I've ever seen. It, it made me sick to watch because the, the reality is it's like it's one thing if you're we're just doing some community stuff and we're going to try to do some healing within our community. I get the idea that you can do things on a local level. But when you're running for president of the United States and you videotape yourself getting a group of white folks in this one little space to ask for forgiveness to black folks that they don't even really like have any kind of like, there's no like defined relationship that we know about. There's no officialness to it. She's acting as if this like individual forgiveness affects systemic problems, Mm -hmm. you know? So that tells me right there, she doesn't know what reparations are. You know what I'm saying? Like she doesn't know what the point of that is. Right. And to use these black people as props, you know, it was one of the most paternalistic, just nasty things I've seen. And what's bothered me more is people misunderstanding what happened. Like people thinking that this is a good thing when it's, it's just not right. Right. And I, and I personally, I'm just going to disclaimer. I haven't seen it, but when you share this with me and in your hearing you talk about it right now, it's reminding me a lot of the trending topic of white fragility and watching white folks struggle trying to navigate. What does that mean? And how do they, um, take a lot of take more ownership and accountability Mm -hmm. for whiteness and how they perpetuate uh, systemic oppression Mm -hmm. through white supremacy, through characteristics of whiteness and how they show up. And and it's always a, you know, acknowledgement that we are all socialized into systems of oppression and how oftentimes we are taught to succeed succeed Mm -hmm. is by demonstrating these characteristics so they can show up in any number of ways. But I've really seen particularly for white folks and in this topic of white fragility, uh, this this sort of claiming one's identity as a racist in a way that uh, just 
doesn't doesn't come through in a really natural way. It doesn't mm -hmm. come through authentically. Mm -hmm. And I just want to also acknowledge, and I tell people this, like essentially in a lot of work around diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, even if we take it back to our training programs and psychology, how people learn about people of color and diversity is through uh, exploiting POC oppression and trauma. And we put it in the center of a stage and we look at it and you have people of color, you know, be vulnerable and share about their lived experiences. And white people sit on the sidelines and quietly and say, thank you for sharing that with me and never get to practice, never get to do their own work. So there's a lot, I think, of, of restructuring that process. But I just I, I'm, I'm sort of in a little bit of a left space. But I do want to acknowledge that, like what you're saying is essentially there is an opportunity and a process for exploring healing and identity doing it on center stage and utilizing it for a, a, a presidential moment is not appropriate. Right. So, yeah, I think that, you know, it's funny because I was just in a workshop and I was talking to someone about white fragility. Like they asked the question about that. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I tend to push for is like, okay, there's these, these, these markers that people put out there, right? Like there's these things that help us understand concepts, but like, in order to break it down, we have to like look at behaviors and like what are what are the behaviors that are happening in these spaces, and I think that one of the things that is dangerous about like the way that uh, any kind of uh, person with privilege like can relate to people who are from marginalized spaces is that if they're if they're not careful in in their behavior and what they're doing, they will default towards oppressive. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just the way that it's like it, depress, oppressive is downhill. That's where gravity is. And people kind of move towards that. And I think that in these cases, I mean, there's research that talks about how, like, people who are more um, uncomfortable with people, like the, the research specifically about race. So people who are more uncomfortable with black folks, for instance, who are more, quote unquote, towards racism they tend to come off actually as nicer when they're trying to be nice because there's a fakeness to it. Like there's like an extra sugary, extra niceness to it that makes them more likable than for instance, the white person who is less, is, is more anti-racist, which means that they see you more like a human being, which means they treat you more like a human being, which might be that they're not always nice. You know, they're not always, you know, cool and, and cloning and sweet to you because you're a person and you're and they're a person. So they just talk to you. Right that's what I see with her is that she's like this, this, like it's easy to be that cloning and sweet to an object. And I read that because I've seen it and I've seen it in people in person. And then I see her do this thing where she objectifies folks. And the problem is that folks don't understand that being objectified is not good. It's the same as like chivalry, you know, being put on a pedestal for women is not a good thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, it's a way to limit. It's a way to, make you smaller it's a way to control it's a way to kind of cajole you into doing things that they want and what she wants is the black woman's vote mm -hmm. plain and simple it's easy to see what her strategy is and i've been told by um so you know my, my partner she told me that uh <laughs> that apparently it's going the other way now so I'm, I'm i'm more happy about that but i you know i can't speak for the black women on twitter and stuff i just just watch them without the so we got another uh, woman of color on the line. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yes. Dr. Mesa, do you have anything to add in this conversation? I know we just kind of went in a couple different circles, whether it was particularly about this candidate, but also about white fragility, whiteness, how to navigate that process. You know, what, what anything you want to add or things that you've seen from your professional lens? 
Yeah, I think for me, what's coming up too is white saviorism. So her using this moment that could potentially be healing if it was a if it was a community, right? I think the issue that we're having is that it was forced, right? And it's not um, something that happened organically. Uh, so it's really a missed opportunity, and it's really white saviorism for you know, a moment that was used to be self-serving for her, you know, candidacy. And and that's, you know, so yeah, I, I agree with, with all of that here. And um, I think, you know, being t- used as tokens, I think what, what you, um, Dr. Palmer, are, are talking about is, you know, I think a lot of white folks honestly are at that place now where we're being, um, they realize they're, they're more awake to, to, to race. And now we're sort of being used as, as tokens mm-hmm. in our communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like the, it's, it, it's like, it's becoming a stylized thing. Like, Oh, look how woke I can show myself to be. And it, it's not, it's, it's like eating, you know, it's like that whole thing about like eating quote unquote ethnic food. Like, Ooh, I've eaten all these other kinds of dishes. It's not just what I've normally eaten, you know, and therefore I'm cool. And it's like, nah, you, you went and appropriated it. You stole some recipes. You're making money off of it. And you, you, you're you literally not putting money into the community you got it from, which is, by the way, how you end up with French fries inside of a burrito. Like, by the way, just, you know, just, yeah. All right. I'm, we're, I'm not gonna, at, we're not going to go. We're not going to go. I'm looking not, at y'all. I'm we're not going to go. Diego, right. I, oh, you're insane. Okay. I'm like, I've them. never seen a French fries in a burrito. Unless, you, unless you're talking about the folks who actually, but anyway, let me, let me yeah, stop. Yeah, let, let's stop. But, you know, uh, Dr. Mesa, you had referenced a couple things in your shout-ins around, um, you know, borders and, and families in those spaces, Puerto Rico. So I wonder if you want to kind of say what's going on in some of those other communities that you acknowledge in terms of um, pulling in those voices. Yeah, so um, so I think all of these, you know, these three things that I named, Mauna Kea, Puerto Rico, our colonial border, are you know, all oppressions are interconnected. I think one thing that I want, you know, all of our communities and what I really speak to my communities, you cannot just fight for your own community because the same systems that are oppressing my community are oppressing, you know, mm-hmm. indig- indigenous communities, black communities. Um, so we we need to have solidarity um, in all of these movements. And, and I think uh, we're really seeing uprising among um, Black Indigenous uh, communities, uh, folks of color, um, particularly in, in Puerto Rico. I don't know um, how much you all um, are are aware of what's going on in, in Puerto Rico and and what and the uprising that happened there. Yeah, if you could give our listeners a little uh, summary, that'd be great. Yeah. So, so this, so Puerto Rico is actually the oldest um, colonized entity in in this part of the world. This is where um, the Spaniards first uh, came, right? Um, and so, really, a lot of the you know white supremacy and colonization started there, um, and then um, Puerto Rico became a territory of the U.S. Um, and so Puerto Rico has never been free and and has always been treated sort of as the stepchild of the United States, has been viewed as inferior, 
Um, there's so many stereotypes, you know, against the Puerto Rican people. Um, and with Hurricane uh, Maria, um, you know, I think we saw so much injustice. Uh, so many lives were lost and the U.S., didn't do anything to to support the community. It was really genocide that that we're seeing um, in Puerto Rico, and so that culminated, um, you know, last week into an uprising by the people and uh, taking out the governor, calling for their reg- resignation because the governor was complicit in in the people's oppression. And so that that just seeing that movement, you had masses of people leaving their work, leaving their homes, and being in the streets protesting for days on end, mm-hmm. calling for their resi- the governor's resignation. Um, and I and that was really inspiring um, to a lot of our communities. Um, and to know that people power is, you know, is makes things happen, you know, it does tear down oppressive systems. So that's um, I hope that we can use that energy, you know, mm-hmm. in our in our own community. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, you know, it's an example of what happens when everybody comes out, you know, and I think that that's one of the things that we miss in, in the U.S. and in, in, not in the U.S., Puerto Rico's part of the U.S., but I mean, like, in the mainland, like, out here, when we're talking about a lot of, like, social justice movements, people um, with with some specific, you know, uh, exceptions like I think that with with the Black Lives Matter movement and some other movements there's been some really big huge protests but a sustained protest that's multi-city multi-regional that keeps going until you get what you need is not something that we've been able to 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 really do in a long time but it does work it does pull people out of power because in the end people we run it you know it's like they pretend as though we don't run it and every you know, on a regular basis, like regular folks, you know, uprise and then show folks, you know, this place doesn't work without us working. It doesn't work without us doing commerce. It doesn't work without us like going and and making this all run. You leader, whoever's in front of it, you're just there at our at our pleasure, you know, and, you know, we could either do this in some in it, in in you know, I like there's a from some old movie. It was like we can uh, either do this. I think it's a Snoop Dogg said this, we can either do this gentlemanly or we can get in some gangster shit, <laughs> you know, and like either step down or, you know, this uprising will become something else, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. and I think that that's, some, that, that that's something that that's the energy that we need and we need to learn from, you know, we need to like take that and, and move forward with that because there's a lot of people who need to step away from, from, from office. Yeah, and I think even that mo- movement, I think is so, I see a lot of our youth being empowered by that, which you know, I think just even from, you know, a colonial perspective, knowing that, you know, your power has been taken away by you, you know, not even realizing that you have it. And so I think a lot, we're seeing a lot of um, awakening and, and our collective consciousness is increasing. You know, we we have that consciousness through the education that we receive, but I think we're now seeing more of our communities um, really wake up to their power. Absolutely. So I think that's an excellent time to transition into some real talk. Real talk. So you just mentioned, Dr. Mesa, uh, the the perspectives around 
colonization and decolonizing the mind. And I want to take a little bit of time to kind of uh, cue into your work in social justice and the perspectives that you hold and the insights that you hold. So can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe a little bit of free flow, Becker, if you want to ask more of a, a specific question, but just kind of want to give a, a nice block of time to this conversation about what is colonization? How has it shown up in people? And how do we engage in decolonizing our minds? You said it. That sounds like a good question. <laughs> yeah. So I think my um, journey, you know, in academia and, and even in graduate school kind of led me to really go full force into this uh, work. Um, so so we're going to get into some real talk um, about, you know, how sometimes even higher education contributes to that mm-hmm. uh, colonized mentality and how even maybe even the field of mainstream psychology uh, contributes to that colonized mentality. So um, just to backtrack for folks that are, you know, not aware, uh, you know, colonization colonialism is the process where you know white folks uh took our power away from black indigenous uh peoples took our land right uh took our knowledge took our medicine they attempted to right um and so they they uh took away our lands took away our healing our spirituality um they killed our teachers they killed, you know, burned our books. Um, and then, uh, you know, then began to uh, introduce these systems and this really rhetoric that we were inferior, right, as, as Black Indigenous folks. Um, and so that's where the colonial mentality comes in, where folks believe that they are inferior, they internalize this idea that they are inferior because they are um, black and indigenous, right? So that that is something that was introduced to us intentionally um, to control us. And it's actually, I think that colonial mentality is even more powerful um, than the colonization itself because it's it's really ancestral trauma that we're having uh, to heal from. Mm. And so I, I don't know if you all want to add a little bit more to that too. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the first time I heard about colonized mind was listening to Dr. Thomas Parham talk about um, having our mind, the mental shackles of oppression, you know, and how, um, you know, if, if we were to be free, we had to unshackle our minds before we could worry about our bodies because, the, the that that mind shackling kept us in line you know it, it made it so that the oppressor doesn't have to do anything they, mm-hmm. that will just oppress ourselves you know that's what causes us to be violent toward each other in different spaces like and not and i'm not just talking about physical violence but like spiritual and emotional violence you know like the, the even the concept for you know in a lot of um black and brown communities around how we discipline children you know like indigenously we didn't beat our kids you know we got taught to beat our kids because white people beat us and we had to beat them blah 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 and now we're having an internal argument while while white folks don't do this you know they put their kids in time out they do all this other stuff and we're having conversations about whether we should spank or not you know and thinking that it came from us when it came from other places you know and i think that's like one kind of example of that um 
and it you know comes in our spirituality who you know who do we think is beautiful who do we not not think is beautiful mm-hmm. i mean it's so all encompassing and i love the way that you've kind of approached it like you so directly you hit it on your instagram you know this is what colonization of the mind is this is how you decolonize it like here's something that you might not like but i'm going to tell you it anyway and now you need to now it's in your mind so you need to like figure out whether you want to be colonized or not and it's just like and you're so prolific on it. Like you just, you're constantly hitting stuff out. It's just, um, but we'll, we'll get there. Can you, why, why, well, we'll, we'll tell your Instagram later, but yeah, I don't want to flow into your thought. Yeah. I, I love that you brought the, the piece about parenting. And I think that is one of the, for me, becoming a mother was when I really had to, that was, I think the last, uh, I wouldn't say the last, there was two things that I struggled with still with having a colonial mentality. And I I guess I want to backtrack a little bit too, right? So we, in in the literature, we talk about a colonized mind as you sort of internalize this idea that you're inferior, right? And that comes from the oppressor. But I think that it's even, it's more than that, right? Because for example, as a Chicana, I would say I have high self-esteem. I I get that from my mother because she loved me uh, unconditionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I've never felt that I was inferior in being Mexican. You know, I was actually raised to have pride in my culture. And, and I never really heard negative uh, talk uh, about my people. It was always positive. Um, and I think that's also because I was raised in a community that, that I saw a lot of people like me. Um, and, and again, my mother has a lot to do with that. So I never internalized the belief that my people are inferior. Mm-hmm. But I do think that I still have a colonial mentality and that I felt that I was unworthy. Mm-hmm. That even though I, I've achieved success, I... I am unworthy. I felt unworthy, and it's it's still hard to talk about this, but I felt unworthy that of like being paid my worth. Yeah. You know, as, as a Chicana, as a woman of color, I think that's one of the big things that we struggle with to be asking for my worth, asking to be paid my worth. Um, the other big piece is is um, taking time for myself. You know, I feel, and and that's a a colonial mentality too. I think that is strong for women of color where we are always sort of in service to to others. And that comes from, you know, a a legacy of servitude, you know, Mm -hmm. for for ancestral mothers. Mm -hmm. Speak on that, a legacy of servitude. I just want to say it again, because when people struggle, and then I think there's also this part of like, as these things... uh, you know, they they always stay in the experience. And as we revolve around them over time, you know, they get, we call them different things or they get a new name, right? Um, whether it's like this idea of like imposter syndrome or something like that, right? Like, oh, you just don't feel like you're quite good enough. No, there's lots of messages that are all around us that perpetuate people, particularly that impacts people of color and people from oppressed identities Mm -hmm. differently. Mm -hmm. So this idea of like, oh, I've achieved these great things. I should just be grateful, right? That I have a job or that I've uh, had this this, uh, award or this recognition. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the dollars, right? We're not taught to talk about funding. We're not taught to talk about our finances. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily have conversations about how do we negotiate, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. All those things are very relevant, right? And And in 
the spinning of it may sound like, oh, that's something that everybody struggles with. We have to be in the spirit of yes and because it's it's uniquely different for marginalized and oppressed yeah, individuals. Everyone doesn't struggle from that same stuff. I mean, like it's. I think that we have a lot of the psychological concepts around oppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really come down to uh, people, indigenous folks, people of color, women. Like we 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 all have to do a, an extra layer of processing to live life, you know? So, and, and in doing that, we wear ourselves down. Mm -hmm. So like, when you think about something like stereotype threat, it's like, so in order for me to succeed in school, I have to, I have to both do well at the didactics and, and learn the stuff that I'm supposed to learn. But I also have to go through this thing about psyching myself up to believe that I can do well in school because the teacher is telling me I'm not able to, and, and, society's telling me I'm not able to, you know, Mm -hmm. if I'm going out to buy something, I have to worry about whether I'm going to get cheated. When I have to go to negotiate, I got to wonder if someone's going to underpay me, you Mm -hmm. know, like there's a reason why, like there's this whole thing about, and I say this to a lot of folks, it's like, you gotta, if you're going to price yourself out. So like when I'm doing my consulting work or if I'm doing like therapy or whatever, anything that I have a fee for, or even just trying to get a job, I have to think about what would the average white guy get paid in this situation? And I'm saying that specifically average white man, not woman average white man because mm-hmm. if i don't figure out what that price point is it, i'm almost assured to be below it you know and i might still not be able to get up to there but the fact that you have to think about that the fact that you have to be aware of it and and content with it it puts you into a space where you know you're not able to put your whole mind towards stuff and right. I, and i think that 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 is in part a kind of the epitome of what it is to be like dealing with colonization, it's like they've literally weighed you down mm-hmm. without having to touch you. Absolutely. Right. And it's this 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 piece about like always feeling like you have to ask for permission. Yeah. Like where did we learn that? You know, we learned that from the colonizer. Like permission to do the thing that I'm really called to do, permission to show up as my full self, permission to to ask for my worth you know I think so many in my work so many women of color struggle with with just you know claiming their their wellness claiming you know um, stepping into their liberation into their power and we shrink ourselves we make ourselves small you know because we we don't feel that we're worthy right we we almost have to you know I, I feel like that's a big part of my work is they, they need permission to to step into who, who they are and, and what it is they want. And that's learned behavior, right? That's a colonial mentality. And they, they don't believe they're, they're inferior, you know? And so I think that there's, there's that like added piece that we need to add to the literature about colonial mentality. It's not that they believe that they're inferior as a, as a woman of color. It's that they, they, they doubt their worth. You know, they're, they're, you know, I, I ask these questions on Instagram, um, you know, mm-hmm. the re- about, I, I talk a lot about self-care and worth. And uh, one of the more recent um, talks we had is the reason you struggle with, with self-care is because uh, colonialism taught you to tolerate abuse. Mm-hmm. Say that again, please. Yeah. So the reason you struggle with self-care is because colonialism taught you to tolerate abuse. That 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 right there. That is so powerful. Yeah. And it shows up in so many places in our systems, you know, and healthcare is a big part of it. Um, You know, what what does pain look like for people Mm -hmm. in different ways? 
And when do they announce that they are in pain or not? Right. And even when they do, is that taken seriously right. by our systems, exactly. by people around us? Yeah. I mean, like, you can go back. I, I mean, I could think about times in school, for instance, when, you know, you're a kid, you're like fourth grade or third grade or something, you got to go to the bathroom, you know, and a teacher tells you, no, you don't, you know, or like something's hurting. No, it doesn't. You know, and they'll, they'll and, and I didn't see, I mean, I think you don't see it in that moment that you're being treated differently. But when you you look at it now and what's reasonable and what's not reasonable, I think a lot of people who come from like, and like I said, an indigenous or person of color background or whatever, like there's experiences that we had early in life that are part of that teaching process, you know, mm -hmm. like that systemically you're being placed into a space um, where you're not, you're not able to learn to kind of, to, to just advocate for yourself. I mean, for me, I, I, I've had trouble with dental stuff my entire life and I didn't until maybe a few years ago realize that it's because I was abused by a dentist. Like I had a dentist who literally would not numb my mouth. Mm. And this is as a little kid, like I'm like four or five. And I would, I would sit there and be crying and screaming and hurting and stuff. And the guy would literally yell at me to shut up and that it didn't hurt. Mm. I'm telling him it hurts and he's telling me it, it, it doesn't hurt. And from then I had like, basically I neglected dental stuff. So like I've come into this awakening of helping my dental health and stuff in the last like five years. But like, you know, it's like little, I, I bet you people can think about little, like not little, but things like that, that happen that you don't even think about as an adult, but they told you your pain doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to transition just a little bit. Um, wait, actually, before I do, I have one more question for you, Dr. Mesa. Is that, excuse me, and is it Dr. Rosales Mesa? Do you like both of them? Is that the preference? Yeah, either one. I tell, so I have two last names because that's traditional in, in Latinx yeah, culture. Yeah, and so, I want to honor I, that. Yeah, I'm, I answer to Dr. Rosales, Dr. Mesa, Doctora, whatever you feel called, I, I do it all. All right. So before mm -hmm. we shift gears just a little bit to talk about your work, I'm curious if there, as we're having this conversation around decolonizing the mind, what are some strategies or some ways in which you uh, support people or help people understand how they might approach that in their own lives? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I think what... One of the things that I, I have folks do is um, to really, so mindfulness is a big part of, of my work, to really um, allow space for yourself, for your spirit, and that, that self-care, you know, of, of making safe, uh, space for your spirit, your, your solitude, your peace, your calm, that that in itself is revolutionary um, because you know, just like Dr. Palmer said, all we are indoctrinated from an early age. You know, there's so many messages that we receive in every area of our life that tells us that we, we don't matter, you know, and that our pain doesn't matter. And so I think, you know, one big step is to really take time to quiet the noise in your head and so that you can start to get in touch with your intuition. Mm -hmm. Um and getting in touch with your intuition is really, I think for me, it's the biggest part of uh, reclaiming your power because we, because we have a colonial mentality, we always believe that the answer lies in something external, right? 
the answer lies in, in something that someone else is going to tell us or an institution, right? But it's really, you know, uh, learning to tap into your own voice and, and your own power. So I, you know, I do a lot of like the deep breathing, you know, work that it's, and I, and I make it, you know, so that it's very accessible to folks that you can do deep breathing at any moment, right? Mm-hmm. Within traffic and with your child, if you're losing your patience, um, so mindfulness is, is a big part of that um, for for the folks that I work with. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah. So you recently switched gears a little bit uh, in in your profession and in your disciplines, and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about you know your transition from um, as a formal uh, professor and uh, in in, in university setting into what you sort of self-describe as a life coach? Yeah. So I, um, so the reason why I chose to be a professor is the, and it's because I didn't listen to my intuition. I, um, I'm an an empath and I identify as an intuitive empath, which means now that I just trust my intuition, my voice, and that I'm, and this is really, you know, I think, you know, white supremacy has taught us these things as being sort of new age, but these are indigenous practices, right? To be in touch with your spirit, to be in touch with, you know, source, God, the universe, whatever it is that you call it, your ancestors, these are all indigenous practices. This is indigenous healing, right? So for me, I didn't... um I didn't trust that. Um, And so that's why I moved into being a professor because I felt like it was something that I can control. It was, it gave me more boundaries with the people that I worked with Um, because I, in being a a therapist, I didn't know how to set boundaries. You know, I I would um, think about my clients when I would go home and it would weigh me down. You know, I, I didn't know how to, you know, separate that, you know, and, and honor my own spirit and what I needed. Um, and so I was in academia for 10 years. Um, but then it became sort of this spiritual prison for me. Um, and, you know, as, and so I worked at a HSI, which means a Hispanic serving institution, but a Hispanic serving institution can still be a institution of white supremacy because the people in power administration you know the president the deans the chairs are all white folks Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. and academia is a very white conservative place you know it it is um i don't think we talk about it as much It, it can feel you know, you just, you really have to work hard to show up as your full self as a, as a person of color. And not only because there are so few of you there, but because even the way you speak, the way that you dress, where, you know, for me, I grew up in a poor working class community, just, you know, the way that we are, you know, how we walk, how we talk, Mm-hmm. You know, it's not what is viewed as quote unquote professional in these spaces. Right. And so you really, really have to work hard to, to, to show up as, you know, what you, 
what is deemed as professorial, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if, if you all um, want to speak to that too in, in being in academic spaces. I can absolutely relate to that, but I'm going to defer to Bedford for a second. Because oh, you are, you, well, because you are, you. Because oh, I'm a professor? You're a professor, okay. yeah. Well, I mean, like, yeah, I, I, I feel it's, it's interesting because I, you know, I resonate in certain ways. Um, and then like in other ways, like I get something out of being a professor, but I think that that, that kind of goes to that whole idea of listening to your intuition. Cause for me, the professor side was, was the switch, right? So from academia, so I, I was, I was also, you know, working as a full-time therapist. And, um, I think that for me, the reason that the switch happened wasn't necessarily, um, I don't know. It wasn't about boundaries. It was more about. It was actually about like less boundaries, you know, for me, it was like more like I get to express my ideas in the way I want to express them. And I get to um, help people in a different way. And, and, and I think it has to do with like, you know, who you are, you know, who, who, who your internal space is. Like, I think that if I was in, you know, if I, if I was back with my ancestors, my job is the griot. You know, like, I think that that's a big part of who I am is like, I tell stories um, mm. and telling stories is, 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 is what makes me happy. It's one of the reasons like I, I feel comfortable doing what we're doing right now and naming it. It's mm-hmm. one of the reasons like I like doing the social media stuff. It's just that the storytelling part of me, it has to come out and it, it'll come out when it ain't supposed to come out. Like students and like clients are like, man, okay, that's a cool analogy, but you didn't have to spend five minutes on it. Yo, you know, it's just like, nah, but it had, there was something for it, you know? So I, I I think like that, I guess that's where I would say like, you know, I, I identify well with being with that, that space, but I also identify with the idea that is controlled by folks who aren't necessarily, um, you know, uh, affirming or, um, you know, about our communities. Um, you know, the farther you go up in any administration, you're going to end up seeing like more whiteness and more maleness. And it's just... You know, so even no matter how, like, woke or whatever you want to say your program is, you still have to get past these, like, funding lines and you have to, like, get past mm-hmm. these, like, folks who are going to regulate what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, that can that can definitely feel stifling and, and, and can become horrible depending on who's there and, 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 and how you're, you're in that space. So, uh, you know, I think... Uh, I, I, I totally feel that. And I, and I also right now feel good in my space there. Yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, the word that you used, uh, Dr. Rosales Mesa, the professionalism, and it shows up in so many different ways for our students, our mentees, but also, you know, in our places of work. Um, and I'm thinking back to my time in graduate school and how I had this really deep learning curve around how to actually regulate the things and the ways that I say them and what comes out of my mouth in such a way, not only to make, really part of it was just making other people feel comfortable. So how do I frame my ideas and say what I need to say in such a manner that it is received by other people 
and, you know, engaging in this bit of a dance, right? And I think that you could call it, you know, code switching, you could call it, you know, sort of how do you navigate those pieces of stereotype thread. But that's really the first thing that I learned of like, it's important for me to acknowledge the things that other people have said, particularly when they are sensitive white folks. And then I can say the things that I need to say and package it and wrap it in such a form that they, that they receive it. And I've also noticed that that really, you know, we talked about this idea of characteristics of whiteness. Um, and it, and I think there's complexities of the things that we naturally adopt, who we are as individuals, the things that have been taught to us, uh, whether it's by our parents or our communities around us, and how we either prefer to show up in the world or our flexibility in showing up in the world, both in the ways that we present ourselves physically, uh, verbally, from our energy, etc. And I'm very attentive uh, to the ways in which I can... Uh, sort of as a chameleon, right, kind of shape myself in such a way where I know I'm going to get more um, either acknowledgement or I'm going to have an easier time, right? Mm -hmm. So if that means that I have to, you know, present an idea and write a certain type of memo and write it a certain way, that's also demonstrating that, you know, situating myself in the system of whiteness, right? Because I can't just show up with an idea. I have to formalize it and write it and structure it in such a way that someone's going to look at it and be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? If I just said it out loud, eh, it's going to fall short, right? So there's these, there's these ways in which we navigate these systems and the, and the more that we learn some of these unwritten rules and structures, like it is, it is a, it's a brain boggle, right? And it's like, do I want to participate in this stuff or do I choose not to, right? Yeah, and, and really that process for me became so draining Mm -hmm. you know it's it's this it's psychologically and spiritually draining to to have to do that to have to jump through those hoops and and I love uh Dr. Palmer that you said you know that you you're in your zone of genius and being a professor you know and I think that um you know I I want to bring to light too that for women of color that being a professor is even more of a challenge because we have the added layer of, you know, of sexism that we are not viewed as, you know, in society as holders of knowledge, as someone that can teach you something, you know, we're viewed as someone that can serve you something like we, we can be your maid, but we can't be your professor. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that, that was really, you know, I got that in, in so many ways, you know, as a colleague, as, as the, you know, teaching a class. And that just became so heavy for me. Um, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. And it literally, it, it made me sick, and which is why I transitioned because uh, when I, be, I, I was working um, in pain for two years, I had severe migraines because I think all of this stuff, you know, my body was telling me, my body and my, my spirit were telling me that, that I couldn't do it anymore. But I was so invested in that career and the identity of, of a professor because I worked for it all my life. Um, and, and what I see now is, you know, like spirit and ancestors literally, you know, had to force me out there by way, by way of illness to get me out of there. And so I had to take medical leave um, and I really had to do some soul searching and a lot of grieving, too. Mm. Um, uh, but I, you know, through all of that, I, I really had to kind of trust my own voice and my intuition that what am I being called to do? And for me, it was, you know, be doing this intuitive uh, life coaching work and 
and not not being constrained by any system, whether that's you know a, a system of what they deem as as therapy or you know what they deem as you know knowledge. For me, it was sort of getting out of those systems that 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 is what's finally liberating me and and how I want to to work now to liberate other folks. Uh, you know, I think that that's something to that I definitely need want to acknowledge in terms of um you know the difference in having multiple layers of of uh marginalized identity when walking into those spaces um i think for me it was you know as a as a black man i felt a lot of that too in terms of like not being smart enough i got a lot of feedback that i shouldn't even be a professor um and uh that i was you know uppity and that i thought i was too smart and you know there's and i could see how you know especially if it wasn't for like I got some energy out of this because of my like wanting it like in terms of not like wanting it but like the whole like you said about being a an empath like I really feel like spiritually it's called and so that was one of the ways that I was able to kind of deal with the the same like similar kinds of like really really negative stuff and it's only like recently that I feel like after, I mean, there's so much extra work, like learning how to manage your reputation, learning how to like get students to not like basically down you in, behind closed doors and get the other faculty not to triangulate that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah, it, it's like if this isn't, if it's not something that you feel like you need to do, then it's just going to crush you, you know? So, I mean, I think that it's brave after spending that amount of time. I mean, they, they, they work it out so that, if you get tenure, you're so invested that it's 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 terrifying to try to leave that, you know, um, and for you to like step out and do, you know, do you in this way. I honestly think it's beautiful. Thank you. It was scary and it was yeah. hard, um, but I think that's part of um, really my soul path is to help folks, um, you know, because I think a lot of the people that come to me for help, they feel, you know, they're successful and they did all the things that society did, told them to be successful, but they don't feel fulfilled, you know, Mm -hmm. and they feel like something is missing and they, they don't know what it is. And so for me, it's working with them to sort of identify those uh, mental, emotional blocks um, and really confronting the oppression that they experience so that they can be liberated to really listen to their soul's calling. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, and and I believe I'm a guide for them. You know, they know, we all really know what, what is, what it is that we want. You know, um, it's just that for folks of color, I think it's, it's really, we have to uh, confront and undo all this conditioning that we receive from, from colonialism and white supremacy to, to get to that place. Beautiful. So there's a question that we like to ask folks, really, and you've already referenced this a little bit in your own uh, journey and in in your own sort of work with others, um, but around wellness and self care. So, how do you take care of yourself? Um, So I I learned the hard way. (laughs) You know, I didn't do self care, and and I think a lot of women of color have this experience where you take care of everyone else but you and and that was me you know I'm the oldest daughter of three 
I was raised by a single mom. And so I was in some ways a second mother. And I also had to learn to be strong for my mother. You know, I, I, it's not something that she told me. I just felt that, you know, mm-hmm. um, that responsibility. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, too, that are psychologists, that, you know, our family looks to us for, for support, for leadership, for answers, you know. And so for me, I really slipped into that role. I think also being an empath, I I didn't do what I needed to do to take care of myself. And so it had, I had to really get sick. And when I say get sick, like I literally, you know, I was in daily pain and then I was bedridden and I couldn't get out of the bed. I couldn't get outside in in the sun because it was too painful. I was in a really dark place. And for me, I had to experience that to finally heal and, and know that I am worthy, you know, of my time I I am worthy of my own care. I am worthy of my own love, you know, and I think for me, um, and this is something that came to mind earlier, is that for a lot of us that grew up in poor working class communities that have achieved some sort of success, you know, have access higher education. And and for us, you know, having a doctorate, there's so very few of us um, that there's there comes some survivor survivor's guilt with that mm. you know and mm. for me it was such a heavy burden that you know I've been given all of this you know um, and I need to give it all back you know and I am one of the few and so I need I have a responsibility to to take care of my community to take care of my family and while I believe that's absolutely true that we have a duty to our community. I also believe that we need to leave some for ourselves, you know, because a lot of us, you know, struggle with burnout um, or, or that, that guilt, you know, of, of not. And I, and I think, I don't know if this is something that women of color struggle with, but a feeling like it's just, it's selfish to take care of me, you know, when, when my mother wasn't allowed to take time for herself, when, you know, my abuelita, she never did that either. She didn't have an opportunity. My ancestors, you know, so how dare I take some time for myself when they sacrifice so much for me? Mm-hmm. Right. And how do you shift that narrative? Like, you know, for, for someone else that is feeling in, and that's a common a common train of thought, not only, especially when it's been um, the experience in our in our direct lineage, how do you, what's the reframe that you put on that? Yeah, so it's it's knowing that your, self, that your self-care is community care, right? That self-care and community care go hand in hand. And that, you know, and I think why self-care doesn't resonate with our, with our people, with our communities is because it's been repackaged in this white supremacist, individualist, capitalist way. And mm. so we don't connect you know, we don't connect to it. Mm-hmm. But if we, if we can reframe and, and, and think about that, that my, you know, my wellness, first of all, my wellness is revolutionary. My wellness is how I take back my power. For me, that was huge, you know, that these systems are going to do everything they can to destroy my spirit. And I'm going to take back my power by taking back my health 
by by showing up as my full self by by resting you know I don't always have to be doing something and and for me that really get that really it's this jolt that I have to to really claim you know my my self-care um and then it's knowing that I'm a better mother I'm a better daughter I can give more to my community when my spirit, when my body is, is rested and well. So it's really about reframing it as, as the, you know, in, in the collective, you know, and that we can take care of each other. Today is my turn and tomorrow is yours. You know, it doesn't just have to be me. Um, but I think that, you know, th- that colonialism, you know, self-care as, as this individualistic, colonialistic capitalistic concept is what doesn't allow us to to rest and and to do self-care you know and that they've also sort of made us sort of accept it from this scarcity mentality we believe that if you know for example if I take care of me it means that there's not enough for you but it's it's not it doesn't have to be that way it actually it actually is that if I take care of me there's going to be more for you. You know, I can do more for you. I can show you more love. I can have more patience for you. So I think that that reframe um, for our communities is, is really important. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. So a, a closing question that we like to let, ask everybody in the podcast, you know, you know, naming it is dedicated to calling in and calling out the elephant in the room. Are there any elephants that you'd like to name? Oh my goodness. <laughs> There's so many elephants. Um, so one that I uh, spoke about more recently on Instagram that, that I think a lot of um, folks really resonated with is to, um, one is to be aware of who you go to for therapy mm. and to, to not, to be aware of your therapist colonizing and assimilating you Mm, 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 mm. that's powerful i'm having such a strong reaction because i think about it also in terms of mentorship right and how it is easy to pass on the things that have been taught to us or that we have adopted as a strategy and a tool for success that is actually colonization and oppression yes 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 right so it's it's all these ways that it that we've learned it right as whether in our profession as professors as therapists as parents right which you talked about earlier dr palmer it's really we have to do the inner work to realize how has the colonizer how is the colonizer living in me you know in the work that i do in in being a mother um because it, it shows up you know, if, if we're not careful, we're, we're so indoctrinated to, um, and it's about power, right? Um, and so we need to be very careful to, um, and specifically in therapy, to, to not assimilate folks into white supremacy, you know, mm-hmm. to not, um, you know, not, not pa- pass on that colonial mentality and why, I think the therapy room um, for me is such a, an elephant in the room is because a lot of our communities now and, and through social media really 
feel liberated to, to seek help. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I feel like we're sending them into the lion's den because um, what the research tells us is that for folks of color, the system still of mental health still does not work for them. Mm-hmm. That they're receiving lower quality services. That that they're meeting with therapists that are, you know, having uh, unconscious biases against them. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, I think that's, and they're expecting healing, but they they are sort of you know, receive trauma in other ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I um. I think that that's something that comes up with the people that I'm working with a lot. I, I tend to see folks who come, they'll come to me and I'm like the second or third therapist that they tried. And a lot of times it's, you know, I went in and this person tried to push me into this box that wasn't good. And it's not even like, Oh, it's the medication or something like that. Cause you know, I think that like we sometimes go there and say, Oh, psychopharmacology and blah, blah, blah. It's really like, you know, folks being said like, you know, you're being unreasonable when you're not being unreasonable, you know, like it's an issue, it's an internalized individual problem when it's really a systemic problem. It's like, you know, folks being told basically by their therapist that they're crazy when in fact their office or their, their organization or their classroom is just toxic. And like any other toxic space, they need to be like told how to deal with the space and not how to kind of, you know, make themselves fit into something bad um and so it's really yeah i i resonate with that a lot too and i think that it's a big problem and i think that like folks need to one of the things that we need to do when we give messages about like getting therapy and getting support is also helping people understand how to be savvy consumers you know Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and i think you know um for me that's why i chose to go into the wellness, sort of the wellness field, but it's really, you know, holistic health, I say. It's mind, body, spirit, family, community, ancestors, right? It's such an indigenous perspective of health. Um, And uh, for me, it's so a huge part of my work is confronting these oppressive systems because, you know, Black, Indigenous people of color start to internalize the negative messages that they receive. And then they feel like something's wrong with them. You know, my therapist is telling me, you know, to do these things to, to be well, or my wellness coach is telling me these things to, to be healthy and to attract things into my life. I just have to do affirmations and I just have to do deep breathing, but they don't address these systems that are making us unwell, right? And it's these systems that are not allowing us to, you know, to really show up as our full selves, to advance, right? Why do so many of us have obstacles? It's not a coincidence. It's white supremacy, you know? And so if we're going to do any kind of healing work, we need to bring those oppressive systems into the room so that folks don't start to think that something is wrong with them, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. So we so much appreciate all of the things that you shared with us and our listeners, the conversation that we had, but we're going to go ahead and close this on out. We know that there's a couple things coming up. I think Bedford, you're headed out to Chicago next weekend. Yeah. Um, American Psychological Association is having its convention in Chicago. Are you going there, Dr. Rosales, Melissa? I'm not. No, I'm not. I, I 
I'm not, but I'll I'll be there in spirit. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, can I ask you? I mean, am I going too far by asking? Is this like a no, not this year, or is it more like y'all don't mess with APA? <laughs> Tell the truth. Um, a little bit of both. Okay. <laughs> it's just not my thing anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. Um, I'm gonna miss you there. Uh, like, cause you know, one of the things that I, I, cause I love conferences. Um, um, people, I was just talking to, to my partner last night and she was saying like, you know, you really open up, you really show when you're in the conference. And I was like, really, is that something? But people have said that. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, it's because it's associated where, where I got a lot of the mentorship that allowed me to kind of move forward. Um, and it's also where I stopped being as shy. <laughs> cause I don't know if you remember back in the day, I was hella shy. Um, uh, even yeah. when I was doing the, the outreach stuff, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I guess, uh, I'm just excited to go this year because I'm getting to take students with me, uh, which for me is like, I, I think it, it feels like it's, it, it honors, um, uh, you know, it honors my, my, like, and let me not, I'm like trying to keep it together, but like, you know, I'm very, very heavily, and I know you understand this, like connected with like the, the mission of the Freedom Train and Dr. Joseph L. White and like what he did with mentoring. And like to be able to bring a group of students is for me, like being a grown up. you know what I'm saying? It's like that, that's like, oh, I really am a professor. I really am a mentor because I could bring these people and help them. Um, so it's kind of full so circle. Well, it's not, you know, it's just, it just feels like this is one of those, like, for me, it's like a big deal to go to this particular one because I, I have this group who's going to come with me and I'm hoping that that'll be like a regular thing. Um, but one of the reasons that we had to come in groups and one of the reasons why Dr. Wright would do the things he did was because APA isn't always a welcoming space for everybody. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, it's, it can be overwhelming. It can be really hard. It can be really nasty if you go into the wrong room. Um, so trying to build that and we're going to do like a freedom train night on a Thursday so if y'all know me, you know, or you know people who are on the Freedom Train know that we're going to be in the space. I ain't going to say it on here because I don't want, <laughs> you know, like the, you know, white supremacists, whoever show up at, at our thing. But like, um, I just wanted to kind of shout it out and like acknowledge that we're going to be out there and that we're going to be doing some stuff. We got some really cool research that's coming out. Um, there's a model that's looking at um, uh, privileged attitudes and like how, how we deal with that and like... Um, I'm looking forward to to just being out there and 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 seeing folks and being in the kind of family reunion space that it can be for for you know your particular group of folks. Yeah. And I will not be there because I will be in Kentucky at a very special people of color training exploring uh, the interventions of psychedelics uh, and communities of color. Is, is that is that a real training or are you just going it is a real you, training so and i am so be... excited to share it with our neighbors okay. we're gonna be having okay. some special real talks out there okay. and some interviews right. so you're not just gonna go in like you know like i want to go and like, work like get, get get connected to nature and, mm -hmm. and, and 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 find like your spiritual self and... i will be able to tell you all about that <laughs> I will be able to tell you all about that. Yeah, Some more yeah, to come. Yeah. So as we close out this episode, uh, where can we find y'all on social media? Dr. Rosales Mesa, where are you at on social media? Yeah, so I am on Instagram um, at Dr. Rosales Mesa. Um, so you can find me there. So Rosales Mesa is R-O-S-A-L-E-S-M-E-Z-A. And I will be on Facebook soon, but not yet because I'm Facebook illiterate, but I'm learning. 
Okay. Awesome. And uh, you, you can find, where can we find you at? You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Lamisha Hill. Okay. And I'm at DRBF Palmer on everything. Twitter, everything, everything, everything. You can also check out namingitpodcast.com. We want to encourage our namers to go ahead, go to our website, scroll all the way down to the bottom, and join our newsletter. That's how you'll catch our Naming It news, where you get all of our receipts, our references, our uh, sort of our lit review of everything that we talked about in the podcast. We'll curate a special newsletter that goes along with it. If we said something or referenced something, you want to look that up, we'll be able to give that to you. Awesome, awesome. All right, so so we want to give a big special thank you today for our honorary doctorate, Dr. Mega Sonic, in the building. Our yeah. uh, what are we going to call it? sound technician producer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, well, so let's let's be real. Mega Sonic Sound. Um, thank you for you saying know, it right. Yeah, that. like we 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 dubbed the doctorate, but that's not the brand. So that's uh, we'll have to see whether whether you like that or not. But um. Uh, yeah, we're in the studio. I think that this is a place uh, we're going to try to, like, build a relationship here and, and, and be in this space because I got to be honest, like, this is, I mean, it's better than being in an office and having a professional mm-hmm. who can handle a lot of the the, produ- the production piece. I think hopefully this is going to be a better quality product. And for me, it, it, that's self-care. That I mean, honestly, like, it's kind of like, it's, it's it's like what you were saying in terms of, like, feeling bad about taking care of yourself i've been like honestly feeling really conflicted about the time and energy and and and, like the the space i have to put into like producing naming it and it's it's it took a while for me to be able to like try to let go of it because you know i felt like you know why why would we spend money on something when i could just do it myself you know why would i ask someone else to take this time why would we like do that investment but it it really is self-care because after this i mean the you know weekend is still the weekend and i can spend time with my partner instead of trying to figure out how to do something i wasn't trained to do awesome so this week's naming it is recorded at megasonic studio in oakland california oakland and as always want to give a special acknowledgement to music on naming it provided by lee england jr Yes, and thank you to our special guests. Thank you for for giving us your time and your energy and bringing it and and sharing it with the namers. Um, you know, it's it's so wonderful to have you on and to to reconnect. Um, the the process of reconnecting over um, over Instagram and over the years, um, it's just it's just a wonderful pleasure to to um, be getting to know you. And get, And thank you to you all for having me. And I listen to your podcast. And again, I just want to say thank you for making space for us and the issues that are important to us. So keep doing what you all are doing. It's important work. And I I've so enjoyed being here with you all. And keep showing up as you are. Thank you. Wonderful. So all of our listeners, y'all keep naming it. Peace.